Dr. Gerald Fitzgerald is a affiliated faculty member at the SCAR School of Policy and Government at George Mason University. Besides that, he served as a consultant on a number of matters on religion and public life for the Aspen Institute, the British Council, and the European Union. Gerald, the, the reason we wanted to talk with you today, and you've been kind enough to give us some time, is recent report that you've just released, Mapping Anti-Muslim Discrimination and Information Manipulation and Its Impact on Humanitarian Aid and Development. One of the major reasons, besides obviously the interest level that I know our community will have regarding your analysis and your conclusions, is the AML-CTF sanctions community continues to try to navigate between making risk-based decisions, which is what financial institutions do, you know, this credit risk and lending risk, regulatory risk, and of course, there's sadly money laundering and financial crime and terrorist risk. And they try to navigate that because they recognize that if they don't do business with certain categories of customers, there's impact. And so certainly we've seen that in clear evidence in the humanitarian world. So let me start and we'll get we'll get to that in a, in a few moments. But let, let me start with given your background in, in this area, what drove you specifically to do this research that looks at all uh, the current misinformation out there. You have case studies that are extremely relevant. Uh, again, like I said, we'll talk about its adjacent impact on the financial sector, but why did you decide to put this report out now? Thank you, John. Um, so I think it really married a couple of different interests of mine. Um, obviously, as you mentioned, uh, I've been working for a long time in the kind of combating religious bias space generally. Um, but then I've always been interested in disinformation, right? And the fact that we're in an environment right now where there's a crisis in public commun communications and trust in institutions is, is historically low, and trust in government, um, you know, trust in media, et cetera, et cetera. And, and it creates an environment that's sort of um, exceedingly permissive for the spread of disinformation. And, you know, I think we're seeing a lot of uh, effects of that in terms of disinformation in different aspects of, of, of our lives and, and its effect on, you know, public health and democracy and um, just the social fabric more generally. So specifically, um, again, you have, a ch you have several charts in here uh, that look into how certain uh, funding sources are contributing to maybe intentionally or unintentionally to manipulators of information attacks. But before we get to that, what individuals and groups are manipulating information about Muslim-led humanitarian relief and development that are so essential to aid NGOs? Well, I mean, what we see in the report um, is that the vast majority of this um, manipulated information is produced by two activist think tanks. Um, and when I use that term, that they self-describe as activist think tanks. Um, we identify a, a total of five organizations, but but again, the vast majority is, is produced by by two activist think tanks. Um, you know, and they're, they're US-based and they've been sort of generating this content and generating these cycles of misinformation about Muslim-led humanitarian organizations. And this has been going on, you know, for quite a while now, but it really ramped up um, starting in about early 2017. 
um, you know, and it, it tends to be cyclical. So it, it sort of peaked in 2019 and then fell off in 2021. And, um, you know, I fear that we're actually seeing it ramp up again. So I know we don't, we don't, people should read the report to identify those entities. We don't want to give them additional uh, um, you know, public focus. Uh, but I want to, what kind of arguments do they employ? Well, let me, let me start back. I said, these, these groups from your report seem to be focused on policymakers. So I know that's broader than that. But part of what they're trying to do is get members of Congress to make decisions based on this misinformation, right? So what sort of arguments do they employ? And if you can, why do they resonate? You know, and, and we can all speculate why it resonates. People already have their preconceived notions, that sort of thing. But I'm curious, based on your analysis, so what arguments do they employ? And is that correct, that they're, they're generally focused on moving policymakers or are there other um, targets? I think there's a really range of targets. I mean, I think policymakers are um, a particularly prime target for them because um, you know, just of the, the the power that that sort of policy making and even just entering things into the public record can have, um, and that's sort of these things sort of last, um, you know, beyond a specific hearing on Capitol Hill. Um, but the types of arguments they employ are um, things like shotgun argumentation, right? So, so they employ these sort of debate strategies where they sort of rap- rapidly present a whole series of arguments or points um, that are sort of presented quite superficially and, and there's very little sort of supporting evidence um, provided, but there's so there's so much evidence, is, or not evidence, but so much argument is provided that it, it becomes very difficult and frustrating for the audience to actually sift through it and, and analyze each argument point by point. Um, and so that's one thing that they, um, one sort of strategy that they use. Um, they also like deliberately, in our view, create the conditions for circular reporting. So how do they do this? Well, they find um, media outlets or academics that are sympathetic to their arguments. And, and we've, we've seen cases where we, we know they're deliberately sort of feeding this disinformation to, in order to create sort of uh, some sort of basis of media content and academic content, which they then use to selectively edit uh, Wikipedia pages. Um, and then um, we've also seen, and, and there's considerable evidence for this at this point, that they deliberately feed that um, into sort of bank compliance databases in, in an attempt to, to sort of deny financial access to humanitarian organizations. Um, and then if, if banks do indeed deny access or shutter accounts, they'll use this as further evidence, quote unquote, of, of sort of malfeasance on the part of the target organization. So, so basically the fact that the account was closed um, or not onboarded is the uh, rationale that they use to say, see, this, this proves our point. Exactly, exactly. And, and and just to go a little more to your point about or your question about, um, you know, the kind of argumentation they use. I mean, a lot of it involves things like conspiratorial thinking, um, you know, cherry picking, um, you know, specific things that support their points while completely ignoring 
any data that that you know uh, refutes their points. Um, something that's sort of rife in this disinformation is sort of guilt by association narratives. Um, in other words, sort of spuriously connecting target organizations to a demonized group of people or a bad person. Um, appeals to false authority where they will sort of cite, um, you know, authorities that are, are not really qualified or objective or credible um, right. to, to, to sort of support their arguments. Um, there's a variety of other ones that we um, identify in the report, but those those would be some of the main ones. So, so the examples um, are, and you have the case studies in there that talk about a citation that might be irrelevant, as you just said, guilt by association, um, sort of cherry picking fat facts, which is an age old issue, sadly, uh, or complete misrepresentation. So all of these examples, um, many of these examples are uh, spelled out in the report and gives certainly a good indication of um, how this ends up working. So that's that's the way I assume that that's the best way of making this information available, but it's also inaccurate. So besides what you've done in the report, what what has been the response of the humanitarian universe, if you will, community to try to um, disabuse people of these false allegations and things? I mean, I know there's trade associations out there. I've worked with some of them. So I recognize that that's going on. But um, how how robust is the defense and is it working? I mean, is I mean, obviously more much more needs to be done. But what's your take? I mean, you've done this report, so it makes it clear that it's a problem and there's all these examples. But from your view of the world, the people that you deal with, um, are they uh, doing enough to sort of push back on some of this? Well, really, what, what ends up happening is is that these organizations end up diverting um, considerable amounts of their resources to sort of public communications and political um, lobbying functions in, in, in an attempt to kind of refute these allegations that are put out there. Um, you know, it, it, it tends to be quite difficult to do so again, because you have this sort of shotgun argumentation where um, you have such a volume of false or misleading allegations that are put out there that the the um, attempt to actually refute each one individually becomes sort of a mammoth task, right? And sure. um, this, this is known as something um, called Brandolini's law in online spaces, right? That it's much harder to refute bad information than it is obviously to put out the bad information in the first place. So this ends up sort of, you know, again, as I said, sort of diverting resources that would otherwise be spent on life-saving operations to kind of public communications, political functions. Yeah, you know, uh, that, and, that, and that's obviously true in just general politics. You throw out enough inaccurate information. Where, where do you where do you stop and where do you where do you argue when you're trying to get some things done? Uh, I want to talk a little bit about part of your report that looks at uh, philanthropic organizations and how they either intentionally or unintentionally fund information manipulation campaigns. So you have a chart in the report, uh, frankly, that has a number of organizations, which I have clearly heard of, uh, major organizations. And this particular table that I'm looking at is the funding sources that contributed 150,000 or greater from 2016 to 2021 
to what you characterize as the five generators of manipulation, information attacks, specifically on Muslim-led humanitarian relief and development aid NGOs. So uh, I'm not asking you to go, uh, people can look at the report and make up their own mind regarding it, but what's your general view? Are all of these organizations well aware or do they need people like you to point out folks, um, the, some of the funds that you think are going for humanitarian support are in fact uh, doing the opposite? I, I'm just really curious, because again, looking at the, the list of these, of these trusts and entities, I've certainly heard of a number of them. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's really important to be aware of the fact that I think a lot of these um, funders of this socially harmful, these socially harmful activities, are probably in fact unaware of, of right. the fact. And I, I think we, in that particular chart that you're referring to, we put in a, a column in there of the percentage of total funds dispersed. Yes, you do. Uh, yeah. For, for each organization. So the idea there was to show that, you know, uh, an organization such as Fidelity Investment Charitable Gift Funds, right, it's 0.01% of their total um, funds dispersed in that time period, right? So um, also, you know, that's a, a DAF, right? So, so um, donors, um, give money to Fidelity, they take the immediate tax break, and then they direct Fidelity where to, to put the money. So it's not like F Fidelity is right. funding it. Um, so um, in a lot of these cases um, where we see sort of much larger percentages of the total funds dispersed, um, then you start to question, you know, this is you know, this is probably not a, a good actor in the funding space. Um, so I think that's you know it's important to interpret um, um, it's important to interpret um, this chart in, in in that particular fashion, right? We we don't want to cast a pall over all of these funders. We just want to point out that you know you may not be aware that you're actually funding um, these socially harmful activities. Right, and, and that's and that's the point, right? The point is look at these organizations. People like I, I have said, I've heard of them. You make the point that these are small percentages, but they need to be aware that at least some of their funds are going to places that are harmful to the overall scope of your mission, and that's uh, aiding humanitarian organizations. So I, 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 I take your point. I want to um, also ask you, one of the things I've learned in the years that um, the AML community with, that we've worked with um, charities, humanitarian groups was what we didn't know, what financial institutions didn't recognize in terms of the um, uh, the due diligence that gets done, uh, you know, by charities, how they're governed, you know, that sort of thing. And then we learned about things like GuideStar. So GuideStar, which is now called Candid, is a primary source of information and database for nonprofits, so we, you know, so now institutions, not just now, but they obviously recognize that as a data source. But you have a segment in your report that talks about back in in 2017. I want you to talk about this a bit. That um, they took the step, Candid did, of highlighting several nonprofit groups that were identified as hate groups by the Southern Poverty Law Center, which is a well-known and well-respected organization. But there's been there was some uh, major pushback. You want to talk a little bit about that? 
Right. Well, um, as you mentioned, yeah, Candid um, took the step of, of sort of flagging um, nonprofit entities that had been identified as hate groups. There was an enormous amount of sort of political pushback on that. Um, and ultimately, you know, it played out in the media. Um, Candid um, ended up backing down. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it, 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 it was just an attempt to kind of combat the social harm caused by hate groups was was basically defeated in in sort of the the media and political realms at that at that particular point yeah right uh so people should look at that i also want to talk about more positive things <laughs> you've recommended in the in the report how funders can better understand uh sort of this universe you have a section in there on on risk assessment and management, how to align your core values of the various foundations and trusts, have a more engaged philanthropic uh, response for nonprofits. And then you also mentioned something that seems logical, wouldn't have known that, but one of the most effective approaches for funders is to reduce their exposure by focusing on local needs. So there are definitely some very positive things in there, including, um, again, a number of uh recommendations beyond that but uh as i said there's case studies uh, i'm going to ask you some final thoughts on the financial sector for a second but anything in particular in the case studies that you want to highlight there's a number of really they're very comprehensive and detailed but you know we want people to read all of them but is there anything in particular you want to flag for the audience now in the second case study in the report, um, which um, addresses a cycle of manipulated information that targeted a charity by the name of Helping Hand for Relief and Development, we actually, you know, really dug down and found the the original source material that created um, um, that was used as the original source, primary source of of allegations made against Helping Hand. Um, and we kind of deconstruct that, um, and not only that, but we deconstruct the initial reporting that that was, um, you know, stateside um, content generation of of um, an an attack basically on Helping Hand. Um, and I think um, for people who want to kind of see how this works and what the roadmap looks like, um, that this. The second case study on Helping Hand is, is particularly instructive and we in fact kind of use the framework that we develop in section three of the report, which looks at all the kind of logical fallacies and, and um, different ways of manipulating information. And, and we then use that framework to deconstruct um, uh, one of the kind of articles that formed um, uh, really the source of, of a whole cycle of manipulated information that, that ended up sort of penetrating um, Capitol Hill, leading to sort of a house resolution, flurries of emails, and various, um, you know, various other sort of legislative actions. That, you know, that's consistent with uh, sort of my last uh, question before I ask you to sort of predict where we're going to be in five to ten years, but how does it make it? How how does all this make its way to policymakers and financial institutions? And you've already alluded to that that you know lobbying by these generators of false information can result, as you say, into the House resolutions and hearings and that sort of thing. Uh, anything else you want to say re regarding that? Because I think that's that's pretty straightforward. That. You know, if you're getting sympathetic members of Congress 
who are responding to information that's not, uh, in many cases, not only inaccurate, but deliberately inaccurate, that that can lead to bad policy. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think it's as simple as that, really, is that uh, um, one of the generators in particular has has a pres- lobbying presence on Capitol Hill. And, and I'm not saying that all the work that they do is necessarily bad, but I'm saying that in this particular sector, um, and what they're doing is 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 manipulating information. Um, so they they may have a level of of sort of credibility on Capitol Hill because of other work that they do, and and then they're able to sort of use this to to kind of penetrate the the offices that they need to on on Capitol Hill. In in terms of um, the financial um, sector, um, you know there there is we do have evidence. Um, you know, very strong evidence of deliberate campaigns of actually like sending letters to risk compliance databases based on um, content generated um, and based on disinformation, um, where the disinformation is laid out in the letter and, and the letters conclude with, you know, surely given all this information, you need to be flagging such and such an organization or such and such an individual in your database. Um, and those sorts of efforts, um, we think, have been actually quite effective. Um, so that's, you know, a problem. So uh, let me get you out of here on this. Uh, this report is must reading for all of us that have to figure out risk risk decisioning. So we have yet another um, tool, if you will, to make informed decisions. But given all of this, given the impact on on policy, on understanding or lack of understanding of what's actually happening, and also financial institutions. And and as you mentioned early on, how some people that are funding charities don't necessarily know that some of their dollars are being uh, potentially misused. Um, Besides this tool and the work that other groups are doing and work that you've been doing, uh, let's try to end if possible on a positive note, do you see improvement in in the next five to 10 years? Or maybe more importantly, what would ensure improvement besides the transparency that reports like this are uh, attempting to spotlight? Well, I think I think most of of the areas where improvement can happen is are really all down to kind of like increasing due diligence. Um, um, And that goes to, you know, whether it be in the sort of bank de-risking arena or in uh, congressional offices or um, or elsewhere um, or media spaces. Um, I mean, I think that, you know, it's interesting. I've been tinkering a little bit with AI, um, chat GPT, et cetera. And when I feed very pointed questions in about organizations that have been targeted by disinformation, I, I see quite encouraging responses come back. Um, I, I, I'm aware that AI, like any technology, is a double-edged sword, and um, as AI may be a tool that could be really well deployed in sort of cutting through this, I fear that it will also be used, um, you know, as, as a way to produce further disinformation. So, you know, I think uh, as with, um, you know, counterfeiting or, or any other criminal enterprise or so, socially harmful enterprise, um, you know, there's likely to be a kind of, um, you know, cycle of, of 
of um, argument and counter argument that that goes on and just moves into different arenas. So I hate to I hate to not end on a positive note and, and a more neutral note, but um, I think this is just something we're going to be struggling with for a little while. You know, but I think your point about AI is is a is a good one because it's good to know that it seems based on you know what you've been able to do re- recently that the information that flows out of that those systems is more balanced than perhaps we are now. So I think I think that's actually a that's a positive. Um, Gerald Fitzgerald, I thank you so much for taking time today. We'll certainly make sure that people get access to the report uh, and any follow-ups, of course, that you do. But appreciate you uh, bringing this to our attention. As I said before, you need a lot of tools as a compliance officer in the financial sector to deal with anti-money laundering and terrorism and sanctions and to understand that there are other challenges. Uh, It's important because I can just tell you from the past five to 10 years, our community has wanted uh, to be able to to work with humanitarian groups as, as best we can. And if you have all the tools at your disposal, you're better able to make more informed decisions than just blanket exiting relationships or not onboarding. So uh, you've definitely added uh, a, a positive tool to a, a very a very broadening toolbox, I guess is the best way to describe it. Well, thank you, John, and thank you, um, thank you for having me. And uh, you know, I, I definitely appreciate um, you helping get this this very particular niche um, some additional exposure. Right. Take care. Thanks, Gerald. Thank you.